In his paraphrase of the Bible, Eugene Peterson, he begins Hebrews chapter 3 as follows. So my dear Christian friends, companions in following this call to the heights, take a good hard look at Jesus. He's the centerpiece of everything we believe. Faithful in everything God gave him to do. I love that. Note the phrase, take a good hard look at Jesus. This is what the book of Hebrews is all about. In fact, this is what Christian discipleship is about. If you want to deepen your commitment, if you want to fan the flame of the love of God in your heart, if you want to build up the muscle of your faith and add to the storehouse of your knowledge and develop a greater awareness of God's presence, then here's the prescription. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. And that's what we intend to do tonight here in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3 begins, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. Consider Christ. Tragically, these Hebrew believers who had received this letter were proof that in this world, it's easy for us to get distracted and take our eyes off Christ Jesus. You remember the story. Peter walked on the water as long as his focus was on the Lord. But as soon as he saw that the wind was boisterous, he became afraid and he began to sink. And the winds and the waves of circumstance, the boisterousness of modern living can steal our vision of Jesus. It's sad that life can get so hectic, so frenetic, that we forget what really matters in this world. We begin to major on minor issues and we minor on major issues. Strangely, this can even happen in church life. We forget our priority, our commonality. We grow preoccupied with the peripheral and the trivial. And we forget to keep the main thing the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. One commentator writes, If you would deal aright with the circumference, live at the center. From the church, come back evermore to Jesus. That from Jesus, you may the better go back to the church. Bearing the peace and power of the Lord himself upon you. While Jesus was in Jerusalem, a Greek delegation, they paid him a visit and they approached his disciples. And in John 12 verse 21, we're told that they asked Philip simply, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Hey, this should be our prayer. This should be our priority. We wish to see Jesus. Well, verse 1, it tells us, consider Christ. Who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was faithful in all his house, or literally among all his people. Moses faithfully represented God to Israel. As we mentioned last week, the book of Hebrews was written to a band of Jewish believers struggling with their Jewish roots. They had embraced Jesus as Messiah, but what about their traditions, the traditions of Judaism? What about their religious upbringing? Spouses and parents and siblings and community leaders were exerting tremendous pressure on these converts. The opponents of Christianity were adamant. Faith in Jesus was not enough. 
Along with that faith, you need to keep the rules and obey the rituals and adhere to all of the observances of Judaism. You need to be a religious person. These Hebrew believers were struggling to sort out their allegiances. In this book, the author compares the institutions of Judaism with the person of Jesus, and he concludes there is no comparison. Jesus is better than any other way of relating to God. You don't need religion when you have Jesus. It's better to believe in the risen Christ than to follow the precepts of some dead religion. In chapters 1 and 2, we're told that Jesus is better than the prophets and the law and the angels. Now in chapters 3 and 4, they explain how he is better than even Moses and Joshua. Verse 3, for this one, referring to Jesus, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Wow, more glory than Moses? Charlton Heston? Oh my. You know, realize among Hebrews, Moses was not only the most revered Jew who ever lived, he was the greatest human. He was the hero with no peers. Except for one incident, he faithfully led Israel for 40 years. Hey, think of Moses' resume. Moses spoke to God face to face. He wielded miraculous power. He humbled a tyrannical Pharaoh in mighty Egypt. He liberated his people from 430 years of slavery. Delivered God's law to his people and to the world. Forevermore to be called the law of Moses. He sculpted a band of former slaves into a nation. Converted servants into a fighting army. Led three million people through a barren desert. In fact, Moses was so revered that when he died, the angel Michael buried his body in a hidden grave so that the Jews wouldn't be tempted to worship his bones. Moses. Wow, you talk about glory. In early 2000, Ariel Sharon and George Bush were scheduled for a meeting. Sharon was late showing up and Bush was upset. Sharon told him, he said, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but I was talking to someone more important than you. Well, Bush was thinking, how dare him? Who in the world is more important than the President of the United States? Sharon told him, he said, I was talking to Moses. Bush was impressed. He said, well, can I talk to Moses? Sharon pulled out his cell phone and punched up a number and he started whispering a conversation. Finally, he turns to George W. and he informs him, he says, Mr. President, I'm sorry, but Moses said he doesn't want to talk to you. The last time he talked to a bush, it cost him 40 years in the wilderness. <laughs> well, Moses may be more important than an American president, but here in verse 3, the writer of Hebrews assures us that he pales in significance to the king of kings. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. Inasmuch as he who built the house has more honor than the house. In the construction of the house or the nation of Israel, Moses was a tool in God's hand. But Jesus is the builder himself. Jesus is the divine contractor. Moses is just a sub. In Matthew 16 verse 18, the Lord Jesus declares, I will build my church. You see, Jesus is building God's kingdom. 
Verse 4 tells us, For every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God. Now notice the implication. If God builds all things and Jesus builds the church, then Jesus must be God. Notice that? Here's a powerful proof text for the deity of Christ. Jesus is the builder of the house of God. He is a member of the Godhead. Moses was just a hammer in his toolbox. And Moses indeed was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which would be spoken afterward, but Christ as a son over his own house. You see, Moses was a servant in God's house, but Jesus is God's son. Moses compared to Jesus is like Mike Smith compared to Arthur Blank. Smith coaches the Atlanta Falcons, but King Arthur owns the team. Moses was a hired hand. Jesus, he is the heir. And notice another implication in verse 6. The church is referred to as his own house. How about that? When Jesus thinks of going home, where does, where does, where does he think of? He thinks of us. He thinks of dwelling among us. You and I are considered the house in which Jesus dwells. He hangs out among us. He is revealed through our fellowship. That is, if we continue in our faith. For verse 6 adds, Whose house we are if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end. Now throughout the book of Hebrews it will become clear that a believer's membership in God's family, that is our salvation, our spiritual status, depends on our perseverance. Whose house we are if we hold fast. To be saved, we have to hold fast, firm to the end. We have to persevere. And to illustrate this need for perseverance, the writer reminds the Jews of their wanderings through the wilderness. The ancient Israelis, they began well, but they ended poorly. Why? Because they didn't continue in their faith. Verse 7, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and here he quotes Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works 40 years. Rather than trust God, instead they tested and tried God. The wilderness wanderers, they pushed God's patience. You see, the Hebrews who exited Egypt, they refused to take God at His word. They insisted over and over and over again that He do something to prove Himself. Sort of like the masses that followed Jesus. You'd think Moses turning the river into blood or parting the Red Sea, that would have sealed their faith forever. But understand, miracles alone never really produce real faith. More often than not, all miracles create is a lust for more miracles. Faith grows by taking heed to the Word of God. You see, God has done more than enough miracles to prove Himself to us. It's now time we rested on His promises. In verse 10, God said of the faithless Jews who tested him, Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. The Jews who followed Moses were acquainted with God's works. 
For 40 years, they saw him work miracle after miracle. Miracles on a daily basis. But they never learned God's ways. Did you know that? That you can know God's works, but never go deeper and understand his ways? You see, they treated God like a circus act. Oh, they loved his works. They watched him perform. I mean... They wanted God to do the death-defying stunts on the trapeze. They wanted him to get shot out of a cannonball. But let's not sit at his feet and learn his ways and let him teach us to live a better life. Even today, folks want to see miracles. They want to see the spectacular as long as they can do life as they please. And yet this is the approach that God rejected. Look for God's works without listening to His words and living His way. And He will sentence you to perpetual restlessness. You can kiss the peace of God goodbye. You'll spend your whole life wandering in a spiritual wilderness. Hebrews promises us in verses 11 and 12, So I swore in my wrath, God says, they shall not enter my rest. And then he concludes, Beware, brethren. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Verse 13. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Boy, the hardening of a heart is such a subtle occurrence. It can actually begin on a spiritual high point. After you've climbed the mountain, after you've overcome the obstacle or won the victory. I mean, that's when we're tempted to think that we've reached the end of the struggle. Next time, it'll be easier. Next time, we can coast. It won't be as strenuous. We can slack off. We can cut a few corners next time. All of a sudden, a spiritual resistance sets in. A faith, our faith is no longer persevering. It's, it's gone into a holding pattern. We're not pressing on. We're not holding fast. A wall goes up between us and God and we don't even know it. We harden just a little. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us he exhorts one another daily. He says, exhort one another daily while it is called today. Be vigilant today. Never take a break from faith, from trusting and walking with Jesus. Encourage each other daily. He says, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. Notice it's not just how we begin, but we have to persevere. Notice this is an if statement. It's conditional. You will be a partaker of Christ and all of the blessings he brings if you're steadfast in your faith. If you finish in faith. The Hebrews had started well. They had embraced the sufficiency of Christ with all their hearts. Jesus was all they needed, but then doubts crept in. Their confidence began to wane. They weren't so sure that Jesus was enough. What about the law? What about the temple? What about the sacrifices? What about the feast days? What about what our, our parents and friends are telling us? What about all these trappings of Judaism we've left behind? You see, their initial faith was unraveling. And they're warned here to be vigilant. Persevere. You become a partaker of Christ, not by 
once having faith, but by continuing in that faith. Steadfast to the end, he says. Verse 15, while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And again, he quotes Psalm 95, verses 7 and 8. Every Jew knew these words by heart. They were the verses used in the synagogue to call all the Jews to the evening worship. One commentary says this, These solemn words were intoned week after week, year after year, as a call to carefully listen to the voice of God. And yet, sadly, though the Jews heard these words every week, many of them never took heed. Apparently, hearing and heeding are not the same. We need to always remind ourselves of that truth. Hearing and heeding are not the same. In the late 1950s, a conversation occurred between a Boeing engineer and a passenger right after the introduction of Boeing's first commercial jet, the 707. The employee of the manufacturer spoke confidently about the precision of the new airplane's engineering, the extensiveness of the testing that it had undergone. Finally, the fellow passenger, he asked him, he said, Have you ever flown in the 707? The engineer answered, Nope, I think I'll wait until it's been flying for a while. See, it's one thing to acquire, to even admire information. It's quite another thing to act on the information you've acquired. To acquire and admire is not to act. To hear is not to heed. These Hebrews, they knew the facts about Christ, but now they need to hold on to their faith in Christ. He says, for who, having heard, rebelled? Again, he returns to his analogy of Israel and their resistance in the wilderness. Just because you once heard, even once believed, doesn't mean that you can't later rebel. He says, indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? I mean, the same folks who believed God in Egypt later died in the wilderness. The same folks. Even the mighty Moses couldn't ensure their faith. You see, Moses was able to break the will of a stubborn Pharaoh. He put God's miracles on display. He split the vast ocean. He brought bread from heaven. But he couldn't convince the hard-hearted Hebrews to trust in God. Moses failed to bring his people into God's rest. Ultimately, Moses ended up frustrated. The generation that exited Egypt all died in the wilderness. That is, with only two exceptions, there were two faithful spies. You remember their names? Joshua and Caleb. But as godly a man as Moses was, he failed in his mission. Moses brought Israel out of Egyptian slavery, but he couldn't bring them into the promised land. They escaped bondage, but they never entered God's blessing. They gained their freedom, but never God's rest. They were saved. They just didn't enjoy it too much. And why? Because they didn't continue in their faith. And this describes the status of people today. Oh, they're out of Egypt. They've been delivered from sin, but they've yet to enter the promised land. 
They've been freed from sin and bondage by Jesus their deliverer. They've passed through the Red Sea of baptism. But they've never entered the land flowing with milk and honey. The land of blessing. They're saved but they're not satisfied. They're forgiven but they're not fulfilled. Listen to how author Kent Hughes describes it. He says, the problem today is that so many people when asked about faith point to their exodus. When they began with Christ, they can wax eloquent about their experiences. How dare anyone question that? They went forward, left Egypt. They were baptized and identified with God's people. But troubles came and they turned away. Their exodus is a convenient memory. But to trust God now, that's a problem. For their faith is dead. In short, a faith that was isn't necessarily a faith that is. How current is your faith? The people of Israel, they might have been delivered from Egypt, but they never made it out of the wilderness. Verse 18. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who did not obey, so we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. When the choice was made at the threshold of Cana, there at the Asus of Kadesh Barnea, only two men believed in the truth of God's promise. The other ten spies, they saw the giants in the land, the fortified cities, they saw the obstacles. You see, all the spies saw the same situation. But what the doubters saw were as stumbling blocks. Joshua and Caleb, they saw as stepping stones. And the difference between the two perspectives? It was faith. One man believed God's promises. The others didn't. The two who believed entered in. The people who didn't died in the wilderness. Chapter 4. Therefore. Since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. As a kid growing up in church, I always heard folks talk about their sins and shortcomings. You ever heard that expression? Their sins and shortcomings. For years I wondered, what's a shortcoming? I felt sorry for the gentlemen in the church under five foot eight. Maybe they were guilty. But a shortcoming is the sin of coming up short. Having watched about three billion Little League baseball games now over the years, I've seen kids slide into second base ahead of the throw. Everyone assumes they're safe, but then the smoke clears. And guess what? There the little guy's foot is about eight inches from the base. He pulled up short. This is a shortcoming. You start out good, but you don't quite make it home. You launch out on this journey of faith, but you get derailed somewhere along the way. And you fail to persevere. It's salvation without sanctification. It's forgiveness without fulfillment. It's deliverance, but no delight. Again, Israel exited Egypt, but the Hebrew nation under Moses, they came up short of entering the promised land. And here was their mistake, verse 2. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, 
But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. See, the Hebrews never applied God's word to their life in practical ways. They never mixed the word with faith. The key to entering into God's rest and blessing is faith. And to prove it now, he cross-references several different verses. He says, For we who have believed do enter that rest, as he has said, and again he quotes Psalm 95, So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That's Genesis 2 verse 2. And again in this place, Psalm 95 again, they shall not enter my rest. Here's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us. God has finished his work. On the seventh day, he rested from creation, and God has been resting ever since. God fashioned a perfect world. A masterpiece that was nothing lacking in all that God had done. And this remains God's posture today. He has left no promises on the table. No loose ends that he needs now to tie up. Thus God has everything under control. This is why God never gets up tight. With God, the end has already been worked out. It's been worked out from the beginning. And today... God relaxes. He rests. And He wants us to join Him in His rest. Did you know we can share in God's rest? When my kids were little, I owned a hammock. I kept it out in the backyard. And whenever I would finish up my yard work, I'd spend a few minutes of recovery, actually more than a few minutes sometimes, of recovery in that hammock. And my kids always loved to join me in the hammock. They would wait until dad stopped and crawled into the hammock. And then what would they do? They would stop whatever they happened to be doing at the time. And they would jump in the hammock to swing with dad. And here the father is inviting his kids to join him in his hammock. He wants us to enter his rest. But in order to do so, we have to stop what we're doing. Even what we're doing for God and rest in what He has done for us. You see, we join in His rest not by trying to produce our own. We find joy. We take hope. We experience His sufficiency. We realize His fulfillment. Not by working it out on our own. But by trusting in the work that He has already done. Specifically, the cross of Jesus Christ. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. He had a little jingle that he was fond of quoting. God speaks to us, Bear not a single care thyself. One is too much for thee. The work is mine and mine alone. Thy work to rest in me. I quote that jingle a lot myself. On the seventh day, God rested And He is still resting. And He wants us to adopt that very same posture ourselves. He wants us to mix some faith with truth. He wants us to start living as if God really is in control. That God has everything in control. Why? Because He does. 
He really does. And He wants us to start living like it. He wants us to mix that truth with faith and trust in the God that is resting. If we trust in the God that's resting, we'll rest with Him. Verse 6 tells us, Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience, again he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time, as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Now God entered his own rest after the creation. And he invited the Hebrews to join him in that rest after he brought them out of the promised land. Unfortunately, they failed to experience his promise for lack of faith. But 400 years later now, through the pen of David in Psalm 95, this psalm he's been quoting, God issued the promise again. In other words, long after Israel's failure in the wilderness, God still promised his people this. If you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. You see, the writer of Hebrews is proving to his readers that God's rest is still available to God's people. He promised this rest to Moses and his followers in 1445 B.C. But he reiterated that promise 400 years later in Psalm 95. The point is, is that God's rest is still available. The promised rest for all God's people for all time is still available to us tonight. He says, for if Joshua had given them rest, Moses couldn't do it and Joshua couldn't do it. For if he had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. Even Joshua, Moses, his successor, failed to bring Israel into God's rest. Thus David still makes the offer years later. Israel had two great national heroes, Moses and then Joshua. But neither brought God's people into God's rest. That's why verse 9 tells us, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God. And you see, this is why Jesus is better than either Moses or Joshua. For Jesus leads his people into God's rest. And the next few verses tell us how. For he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works, as God did from his. You see, when God entered his rest, it involved ceasing from his work. For six days, God accomplished certain tasks that his righteousness required that he complete. But once his work was finished, he rested. I don't think that rest involved inaction. God didn't go into a comatose state. I think the difference is that for six days, God did what was obligatory, what he had to do to get the job done. But then on the seventh day, his activity was celebratory. And there's a difference there. What's obligatory and what's celebratory. Obligation is work that is required. Celebration is work that's a response. And this is what it means for us to enter God's rest. Not to become inactive, but to realize that at the cross of Christ, all that needed to be done for you and me to be right with God was finished. That I can add nothing to what Jesus has already done. My requirement was fulfilled by Christ. I'm no longer under any other obligation than to trust Him. 
than to rest in the freedom that he's delivered us, that he's accomplished for us. Now what I do for God is out of celebration, not obligation. I praise and I serve and I pray and I witness not to earn God's favor, but because I already have it in Christ. That's why verse 11 tells us, let us therefore be diligent or literally let us labor to enter that rest lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. That sounds contradictory. We labor to rest? Yet here's the point. Entering God's rest does take major effort. We have to hold fast to Jesus. We have to have faith in Jesus. We have to consider Christ and keep our eyes on Jesus. Corey Ten Boone once said, Look within and be depressed. Look without and be distressed. But look to Jesus and be at rest. And it takes effort to keep looking in the right direction. <laughs> it takes effort to avoid the distractions. This is why having faith isn't a passive thing. Faith is always active. It's aggressive. It's looking and fixating and focusing and clutching and holding on. We don't labor to earn God's rest. It can't be earned. It is a free gift given to us. But we labor to enter it and to enjoy it and to hold on to it. Think of the difference between digging a ditch and planning a party. Trust me, digging a ditch is obligation, whereas planning a party is celebration. Both might be labor, but only the former seems like it. It may sound contradictory, but it's not. We labor to enter God's rest. Verse 12. For the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. The Greek word translated sword refers to the Roman short sword or the dagger. It was an ancient weapon designed for close combat. It did its damage up close, in close range, in face-to-face -face confrontations. And this is how God's Word works. At short range. In other words, when we apply it to our lives, it has the ability to penetrate our facade and to knife through any resistance and to uncover what's really there. The Bible is living. Or it's active. The Bible has a life of its own, a power of its own. And it's powerful or effective. It can transform a life. And it's sharp or incisive. It cuts to the chase and gets to the point and uncovers the real heart issues. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Notice that, any two-edged sword. In other words, it slices both coming and going. It's not only a weapon to use on the enemy, it's also a surgeon's scalpel that the Holy Spirit turns on us from time to time. The Holy Spirit does open heart on the inner man. The Scriptures are able to pierce even to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow. In other words, God's Word untangles our flesh from our faith. It sorts out what's of me and what's of God. How do I know God's will in my life? Read His Word. It differentiates the heavenly from the human. We're told the Bible is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. It gets right to our heart. It can manicure our motives. It can reveal what's really in us. Once there was a young man 
He walked into an old country barber shop. The shop had, was decorated with trophies of wild animals. There was a deer's head mounted and a wild fox and a wild turkey as well as several stuffed birds. But this young man wasn't impressed. You see, he had been studying taxidermy and he was extremely critical of the work. He pointed to the old owl sitting up on the shelf. He said, look at those drooping wings and that crook in its leg and the angle of its head. Oh, it looks so unnatural. He went on and on with his critique until suddenly the owl turned its head and winked at him. The bird was alive. The fella had been criticizing the lifelikeness of a live bird. And this is also true of the Bible's critics. They're critiquing a live book. Berate it, deny it, say what you will about it, but the Word of God, when it's ready, it'll fly off the shelf and do as it pleases. It's a living book and it's powerful and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. The Bible is the only book that's self-propelled. When you hear it or read it, the author himself is working in your heart to help you grasp the message. There's no other book with this power. If you're a fisherman, you know that it's almost always better to use live bait. Is it not? And the same is true when you're fishing for men. That's why we need to learn the Bible. It's live bait. Learn it and then share it with the people around you. It's alive. Verse 13, and there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open in the eyes of him to whom we must give account. In other words, God sees all. Once I had a couple come for marriage counseling. They prefaced the conversation by informing me that they didn't want anyone to know that they were having problems, especially God. That's what they told me. Sorry, God is the one true know-it-all. There is nothing hidden that He doesn't know. There is no secret to which God is not privy. This week I was reading where we need to be leery of the government reading our emails. That nothing is secure anymore. Well, you can be suspicious of Uncle Sam if you like, but I'll tell you, God does read your emails. He does. Your encryptions don't work on God. Not only does he read your email, but he looks at your texts. And he reads your conversations and he eavesdrops in on every word you say. He even knows the thoughts of your heart. Nothing is hidden from God. And then we're told in verse 14, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Now here's another reason to hold on to your faith. Jesus is a great high priest. He's better than the priests of Judaism. Reminds me of the lady who was pulled over by the police. The officer noticed that her license required her to be wearing eyeglasses while she drove. And those eyeglasses were missing. When the policeman inquired, she said, well, officer, I have contacts now. The policeman, he, he said kind of firmly to her, he said, lady... I don't care who you know, you still got to wear your glasses when you drive. But it's true. Sometimes it's not as much what you know as it is who you know. Contacts, connections, 
They go a long way in this life, and they go even further in the life to come. This is why one of the central components of Jewish religion was its system of priests and Levites. Realize, of the 12 tribes, an entire tribe, one-twelfth of the nation, was devoted to lead people in worship. The sole occupation of the Levites was to intercede for the people in their relationship with God. And this gave the people great confidence. It meant that even if they sinned, even if their sin caused God to turn a deaf ear toward their prayers, they still had a contact that they could go to that would stand in their place. And of all the priests, the one most respected was the high priest. Once a year, he was allowed to enter into the holiest room in the temple and there pay off the nation's sin. And yet as believers in Jesus, these Hebrews had turned their back on the Jewish priesthood. To the shock of their parents and their friends and their neighbors, they had thrown away this confidence. And they were being asked, if you no longer reverence the priesthood, how do you ever expect to gain access to God? Well, according to verse 14, the Hebrews still had a priest. And it was not the high priest of Judaism. It was a great high priest. Jesus himself. Jesus entered not only the earthly temple, but heaven itself. These Hebrews had not lost confidence at all. They had gained a greater confidence in their great high priest, Jesus Christ. He writes... For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Unlike the Jewish priest, Jesus is the perfect priest. He's God. Thus, he clearly represents God's truth. But he's also man. And he closely understands our needs. Thus, he's qualified on both ends of the connection. For years, entertainer Bob Hope, he would travel to Vietnam to humor the troops. Once, while reminiscing on his USO shows, he made the statement. He said, all I ever saw was those kids laughing and applauding. I never knew what they were going through until I saw a couple of movies like Platoon and Hamburger Hill. What courage they had in fighting a war we wouldn't let them win. You see, unlike Bob Hope's visits to Vietnam, when Jesus visited us, he didn't stay on the stage and simply perform. Now, Jesus invaded the jungle. He got into the trenches. He subjected himself to the napalm and the sniper's fire. He fought the battle as one of the troops, and he prevailed, yet without sin. Here we're told, Jesus was tempted in all points as we are. That means he had an active libido. He had a curiosity. He had a temper with a fuse. Jesus was a man and he was vulnerable to the temptations that all men face. And yet he never caved in. Jesus was tempted with everything Satan has ever thrown at you and me. And yet he never once succumbed. Jesus remained sinless. And as a result, he is now perfectly suited to help you and me win our struggle for purity. Now I've met people who scoff at this notion. I mean, they doubt Jesus' ability to empathize with us. I mean, how can the Son of God really understand the temptation I'm facing? Jesus was God. How does He really know what I'm going through? Jesus never sinned. 
How can he understand the lure of darkness and the pull of sin on my life? I like how C.S. Lewis answers this important question. Let me quote him. He says, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. You find out the strength of an army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of an evil impulse until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. You see, Jesus knows more about your temptation than you think. A thin rubber band can be stretched only so far and then it snaps. It never experiences a high degree of tension because it snaps before that tension gets applied. But you take a thicker rubber band and it handles more. You can stretch it further because it refuses to break. So which rubber band feels the greater tension? The one that breaks or the one that doesn't? Obviously the one that doesn't. And the fact that Jesus didn't break enabled him to endure all that Satan could muster. Oh, we wimp, whimper and quibble sometimes. Nobody knows what I'm going through. Oh, yes, they do. Jesus knows. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through tonight. In fact, your temptation is kid stuff compared to what he endured. Jesus is able to empathize. He knows your struggle, and he also knows how to win the victory. And since Jesus understands, verse 16 exhorts us, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or literally, when we need it the most. Let us find what we need when we need it the most. God gives us the mercy and the grace and the comfort and the power that we need at the exact moment that we need it. Peterson paraphrases verse 16. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. When you go to God, you don't have to call ahead of time and make an appointment. You can walk right in. Not haughtily, not rudely. But you can enter God's throne room like you belong. For you do. In Christ you do belong. Jesus has secured for us a total access to God. So let's enter God's presence unashamedly. Unreservedly. Uninhibitedly. You can come to God just as you are. The sacrifice is done. Access has been won. You can come boldly to enter God's rest. And receive his help for whatever trial you face.